0: Hello, and welcome to the Heartbeat of the Dance Floor. Today's guest is David DiPino. David brings to us a rich history that recalls the earliest days of our dance music culture. His story offers a rare firsthand look at such groundbreaking places like Club Sanctuary, the Gallery, and the Loft. We've discussed the importance of these clubs in our previous podcasts. Now we'll hear about them firsthand from someone who was actually there. Another key role that David played in our dance culture history is that he was the person that found the place at 84 King Street in Lower Manhattan, showed it to Larry LeVan and Mike Brody, and their response was, thank you, this will be our new home. And thus began the 10-year reign of the Paradise Garage, arguably one of the greatest clubs of all time. Since its opening, David David worked in various capacities at the garage, as we lovingly called it. However, he also has the rare distinction of being one of the very few DJs who ever played on Larry Levan's custom-built sound system. Dare I say, you're the only one that ever played there on a regular basis. So it is without any further ado that I welcome my friend and keeper of the flame, David Topino, to the heartbeat of the dance floor. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have you here. Masha, Masha, Masha! Thank you for having me. A true delight, David. Why I've just scratched the surface of your incredible history. Can you just tell our, our audience a bit about yourself and a bit about of, of the 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 club culture that you were so much a part of that groundbreaking those groundbreaking eras? Thank you.
1: Well, I never knew I was going to be part of a culture. I just had an older sister who went to all the clubs and she would come home and talk about them and I couldn't wait to go. And I had family that had a lot to do with running clubs in Manhattan. So at 14 years old, my mother allowed me back in those days in 69 to go work at a club, which was the sanctuary, formerly the church. And uh, it was a different time. I don't think that would ever happen nowadays, but I did. And I was always involved in clubs in one capacity or another. At Sanctuary, I worked behind the bar. was no liquor. It was just soda juice, and we sold donuts and chips. And from there, I worked at many other places. I've been in clubs all these years. It's interesting and unique at the same time.
0: Uh, it certainly is. And and I believe we are of similar age. And I think about what I was doing in my, in my teenage years in Florida. I didn't come to New York until 76. So, you know, when I think about what I was doing in the five years before, boy, we sure did have different experiences. Um, but what a rich, rich history. And, you know, as I'm trying to speak to more and more people who were part of creating the culture that exists today. And these, as i now call them heartbeats, um, I'm finding that there are fewer and fewer that are alive to talk to. And in the scope of doing some of the background that led up to this project, sadly, I can count at least six influential people on my hand that have passed in the last, five years. So, you know, it's, it's uh, I think it's very important that we keep this. And I do want to bring to the attention of our audience that, that one of the things that David has been involved with recently is the keeping of the flame of the Paradise Garage. Please tell us a little bit about the events, your effort to create Larry LeVan way. And um, you know, I know I'm, I'm jumping off topic, but I think this stuff is equally of interest and because The Paradise Garage had such a huge
1: heartbeat. Well, Mel Sharon, the owner of West End Records, wanted to create Larry LeVan Way on King Street. And uh, he started doing the footwork and then got ill and passed away. So we sort of put it on the back burner. Then when Red Bull contacted us about doing a block party on the block, of Paradise Garage, 84 King Street. We tried connecting it to Larry LeVan Way to make the name of the street change. Um, Right around the same time we pursued this, New York changed its rules and no longer were ways being given out easily. They were giving it out to people that died um, tragic, or heroes it just made it much more difficult but we tried and the block party was a huge success and then now you know the building has come down so yeah sadly of history sadly now
0: don't the parties still live on though haven't they then so you know you know uh uh when when i think back and when i was putting together the ideas of the heartbeat i i Try to look at all different aspects, almost like the spoke of a wheel, and and there are a variety of heartbeats that are created by a variety of interactions. Um, some of them the venues, some of them the the music, some the lighting, some the artistic team, creative team, some the management. You know, there's a variety of reasons, and then you have that that bit of culmination where it all seems to come together and it makes perfect perfection. Um, and I think the garage in and of itself exemplified that level of perfection. and then within that were nights of magic that even exceeded that. So so as, as I guess my first question to you is through these wonderful experiences that you've had, um, what would your definition of a heartbeat be? And give us some examples perhaps in ways that you've helped create, um, various heartbeats that you've been involved in on whatever level, as I say, it can come
1: from a variety of ways. Well, you know, when you're in it at the moment, you don't think you're creating anything. You think you're just doing it nightly like you do week before, next week. Uh When you look back on it, especially over a decade or so, you realize how special and what you were participating in at that time you just don't realize it when you're in it um and the club was a democracy it was special everyone that walked through that door was equal and that's how michael brody and larry wanted it to be and i think most clubs were the saint was uh 12 west was flamingo was gallery was. Let me
0: clarify, and I don't know from gallery because that was a little before my time. Um, but 12 West Paradise Garage and Flamingo and the Saint were all membership clubs as opposed to uh, other venues like Studio 54 or the Ice Palace or Xenon or you know a myriad of other places that were in the city at the time. And yes, I would say that the Paradise Garage and 12 West probably of all the private clubs had the most democratic membership policies. And they also were the most open to letting people in that didn't have the membership connection. You know, typically you were a member, you had to be a guest of a member, or (laughs) in my case, in many instances, you worked in the industry. And so they let you in because you were bringing product to the DJ or whatever. But I would say that both 12 West and The Garage did exhibit beyond their membership requirements a heart to also admit people who came in off the street who knew of
1: it. Because look, right. not everybody knew that these places existed. But it wasn't like Studio 54 where you waited online and you got picked. You could, come, you could come in, no, you can't. Michael Brody did not want that to be.
0: Correct, and exactly. Exactly
1: good old days. It was, you know,
0: it was a very special environment. I know I have my own personal connections to the garage and many of memories are with you in Larry's booth in the VIP room. I mean, that was one of your tasks. Um, you know, in fact, uh, uh, there, there were, there were so many different nights and different events that I would say had their own heartbeats. Some of them were extremely outstanding, you know, and Larry was one DJ who certainly had the crowd in the palm of his hand at all times. And when you were there, it was his house.
1: He was a puppet master.
0: It was or I like to think of him as a Pied Piper. 50% Uh,
1: of the other.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But you know, it was, it was his house. You were yes. going to his house for a party. It was perhaps the biggest house party you had ever been to. But that's well, what it was.
1: Jay's DJs back then had one residency. A lot of clubs back then had several nights of the week they were open with different DJs. Larry was the sole DJ. It was his home. He, you went like David Mancuso and Nicky Gal. You went to their house party.
0: Yes. You know. And and it literally extended those house parties <laughs> that I remember Roberta Flack gave as a little inter, intro to one of the songs she did when performing at the Red Parrot about how we'd be in a basement mm-hmm. and there'd be a lampshade in the co- a lamp in the corner and you'd throw a towel over it to get some mood lighting and you'd be dancing on the space no bigger than a dime. <laughs> I will never forget that line that she gave as an intro. To... <laughs> oh my goodness. And it's true. And from those house parties sprang the loft, sprang now buildings that in the 70s there was a lot of real estate available in New York too. Yes. Which there isn't
1: now. Um, Actually, and... in David Mancuso's boot, he did have a lamp with a piece of fabric draped over it, just like the first <laughs> one said, honestly. David did have that. And that's maybe he mood, heard
0: Roberta's show years
1: earlier. <laughs> set the mood for David's booth, which set the mood for the whole entire club.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Tell us a little bit about the heartbeats that you had back then and how perhaps they transcended similarly. And then bring us a little up to more. Um, I mean, I know you've DJed all over the world, David. So please feel free to share with us various. Many various heartbeats uh, that you've now, experienced and created.
1: Please. The very phrase heartbeat from the dance floor is so self-explanatory. <laughs> the dance floor is the heartbeat of the entire party. <laughs> you know, the, the symbiotic relationship between the DJ's music and the dance floor is what brings it to life. Just like an actual heartbeat. It thrives, it pulses, it pounces. It gets excited like when your heart is racing over being ha- extra happy, just like when you're peeking the room, you're you're giving the heartbeat that jolt of energy and then bringing it down to what the white clubs called sleaze, but the black clubs just called music. <laughs> you know? Going to church. Yes. So the heartbeat from the dance floor is so perfect in describing an evening at a great club with great music and great friends. And, uh, oh, God, I'm just going off because the memories are just millions of memories in my mind, and it's wonderful.
0: It, it really is. It's very rich, and you and I were there at the same place at the same time on many of those occasions, and we certainly infiltrated the same worlds and so many of the same people, so many, many, many dear souls that have gone by that touched each of us personally. I mean, Frankie Knuckles before he has Chicago fame, uh, mm. the wonderful T. Scott. I, I mean, just so, so, so many. I, I Talent, talent, talent. Yes, amazing talent. And of course, Roy Thode. I mean, you know, that's been my personal legacy project for quite a while. Um, and And, you know... The I, I'm i a firm believer that if you don't know where you came from, it's hard to tell where you're going. And, and I think part of today's dance music culture has erupted to a scale that we never thought possible. And thankfully now, some 40-some years later, we look back and say, hey, those really were foundations. Those really were building blocks that meant something. It really does follow a trail of history. And I and guess you have to be an old fart to realize it.
1: What's sad is the DJs nowadays that make millions of dollars, they don't know the shoulders they're standing on.
0: Well, hopefully we're going to educate them. And hopefully that is one of the the purposes of creating an interesting broadcast that people are going to want to tune into. We'll have hope to have a lot of interesting guests and talk about a lot of topics and educate people as to, you know, what it was like back then, that euphoria, that, that thing that, I personally think is missing in many ways because of internet and cell phone accessibility. Even if you had an old fashioned Motorola flip phone in 1994, it didn't have a camera in it. So when you went to a club, when you went out dancing, when you were going and, you know, that saying, if it happens in Vegas, it stays in Vegas. Well, that was pretty pervasive (laughs) before we all had camera phones you know when you went out you went to a club it stayed there whether it was a public space or whether it was a private space like the garage but um, my opinion and you i'm hoping will will either uh, give us a little input on that as well part of that heartbeat that you describe part of it what comes from that freedom that abandonment is the fact that no one is scrutinizing you at that moment
1: well there were two things michael brody didn't want mirrors in the club, especially on the dance floor, because when you catch your image while you're dancing and you think you look crazy, you maintain yourself. And when you maintain yourself not to look crazy in the moment, you're not in the moment. Exactly. So there were no mirrors allowed, and he did not want daylight to get into the dance floor because the the club had skylights. Yes, they were covered. Yes. One morning before they were painted black, the light started creeping in and Larry played Here Comes the Sun. But it was summertime now and it was getting light very early. And he went, no, 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 no. And that week, those skylights got painted black. So no light escape because garage opened in the winter. So it took a while for it to get light. But once it started getting light around five o'clock, he went, no, no, no. The party's just getting started. I can't have the light.
0: And I remember many a morning leaving the garage at 10, (laughs) getting on the train and going to my apartment on 23rd street, you know? um, But yeah, it's true. It's true. In fact, uh, uh, Hey, I've got a, a fun picky here. I'm going to throw up that, uh, blast from the past, my paradise garage membership card. Um, So that's what it looked like to those of us in our video audience. Who's that and,
1: lovely lady? Sorry? <laughs> Who's that lovely young lady?
0: A much younger Miss Stern. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: and, and here's another one from, I'm going to segue a little, because the heartbeat of the dance floor could not have happened if it wasn't in no small measure for the music of the dance floor. Yes. And that music came from some of the most amazing artists that, thank God, still walked the earth, but but, you know, too many long gone. And so, 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 so many were our roots. And how did that music get to the club DJs? Because it was a different system back then. Everything in pop music pretty much depended on radios. And one of the ways it did was through a record pool. And David was also part of what arguably is one of the most influential record pools in our dance music culture, and that's for the record. Judy Weinstein's for the record. And I'm gonna throw up a picture and ask you to talk a little bit about it because we've got you and Larry and Judy, and please do uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what we're
1: looking at here. That was One Night in the Booth. That's John Brown, Billy Carroll, Larry, Danny Crivet, Judy Weinstein, and I think that's Jeffrey Osborne.
0: Uh, Jeffrey Osborne behind Billy and Judy, correct? Yes. And, and I, Danny Krivet is. He has
1: just mixed his record.
0: Yeah, now Larry's in the front kneeling. Judy, who, uh, Ms. Judy Weinstein of For the Record fame, and also, uh, uh, is that Def Mix Records? Yes. Um, and then with the mustachioed men over her right shoulder is uh, David DePino. And then on the other side of Judy uh, uh, is, and then let me see. Who's all the way on the right side? John Brown. John Brown, yes. And then Danny Crivet is all the way on the left, just where, David, you have your shoulder, your arm on Danny Crivet, don't you?
1: Yes, and that's my mustache.
0: (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Well, I think you and Danny are the only two mustachioed.
1: Oh, look at that mustache. Oh, my God.
0: Oh, my dear. We were all so young back then. What what year do you think that was taken? 70, 80?
1: Probably early 80s. Probably around 84, 83.
0: Unbelievable. It's a great
1: picture. Brings back lots of memories. Judy is responsible for my accidental DJ career. How's that? I call myself the accidental DJ because I never wanted to be a DJ. I never planned on being a DJ. It was all accidental. Isn't that amazing? It is. Tell us how it was accidental. Give us some deets. Well, I was a hair cutter and... um, I was uh, working in the booth of the garage, running the door, uh, because I knew everybody. I was always training people to do the job. And one day, Larry said, why don't you just do it? So I did it. And I was on vacation from hairdressing. I took a two-week vacation. And Judy had just fired the guy that was working at the record pool. And she said, David, would you help me for a couple of days while I find somebody? And I said, sure so i started working up at the record pool which turned into a permanent job and then working at the dj booth of the garage and bringing larry his music and starting to know the new music larry would like while he was cleaning the mirror bowl or getting the room set up put on the new music for me to hear so he trusted me putting that little needle down on the vinyl and that led into when he was a few minutes late put on the reel-to-reel put on a record. And then I said, well, if I'm putting on a record here and there and there are people on the dance floor, I better know what I'm doing because I don't want to look bad for Larry. You know, he trusted me to do it. So I taught myself how to play records and I would play records for maybe 15, 20 minutes until he got there, which turned into 45 minutes, a half an hour, (laughs) which turned into one hour to two hours, to three hours. And before I (laughs) I became an assistant DJ never planned it never wanted it or seeked it out so that's why i call myself the accidental dj
0: well it seemed to work
1: out because you're <laughs> i've got a great ear and you're a great dj you don't know where <laughs> life is going to take you sometimes marsha
0: you never you never know isn't that the truth well you know case case in point i moved to new york for a career in the music business and in 1979 saw my, my tenure with the Joe Long sound and the Joe Long sound itself kind of implode. And all of a sudden I was doing lighting gigs. And before you knew it, that was my career. It's been a good, long, wonderful one, but you never
1: know where life is going to take you. That's I, for sure. And it's much more interesting. because you get, you get balls, curve balls thrown at you and you got to bat them out of the park. And it's, It's more interesting, in my opinion, than when you plan a career and you follow a path because you sort of know where you're going. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what window or doorway was going to open up for me to fly or walk through. So I was ready for it. It's like, bring it on.
0: You know, I think that that's a very bold, bold way to approach life. And you're right. Not everyone can. Most a lot of people need a path that they can follow uh, as opposed to grabbing a machete and cutting through the thicket on your own. Um, But, you know, by, by the same token, there were a lot of aspects of, of me dropping everything in Florida and, and moving to New York with $400 in my pocket in 76 that I don't think a kid today could do. Today even, is a horrible even time. with inflation. Even when you're counting for inflation, you know there was there was a culture, there was opportunity, there was a setup in the city that existed at that time. It was a regentrification also of the city. You know, Soho was not the Soho that we know, with all the frou frou <laughs> stores and residences. Just like the Lower West Village, where the Standard Hotel now is, was very very seedy. Trucks and, and where you would find wonderful. it was, it was a hotbed of wonderful, wonderful culture. A you know, lot of.
1: We've lived long enough to say, I remember when, when yeah. I was little, I would hear my parents go, when I was younger, I remember when I used to roll my eyes and go, oh, not this again. Now I'm doing it. And it was a different time. It was a different set of rules. It was a different experience. Everything was new. Everything was first. Nowadays, I think the club scene is terrible, but I'm jilted because I I was there for the first round of everything, the first creation of everything, the first modern, everything was new. Nowadays, I guess for young kids that are experiencing it for the first time, it's all new and great for them like it was for me, but I could compare it and it's not as good as it was.
0: Yes, indeed. What I've noticed, well, two things. One, I don't frequent clubs like I used to. I go for specific events or groups of people or a specific party like that, that makes it almost more special. It may be less frequent, but they're more meaningful exposures. So what's going on day to day in the clubs, it kind of eludes my reality at this point time in my life. And that's cool. Cause I kind of been there, done that like you, right. Um, been- what right. I, what I have experienced are some of the, uh, music festivals, which seem to have the little large festivals, um, which have replaced more of our smaller clubs and smaller club venues. <laughs> and I see a lot of people that are paying attention to the DJ who theoretically is the performer on stage, even if he's just, playing back productions that he's done in the studio and he's not actually mixing them live. Um, but they're paying attention to him rather than forming communities within the greater community on the dance floor. So I know when we talk about the heartbeat of the garage or other clubs that we were privy to, Sound Factory, for example, you used to DJ at Sound Factory, didn't you? Yes. And Sound um,
1: Factory Bar also. Sorry? And Sound Factory Bar. Sound yes. Fact- Factory for a couple of months. Frankie Knuckles and I, after Jr. left rotated Saturdays for about six months to a year, and then I moved on. Now, to clarify, there have been a few
0: incarnations of the Sound Factory. There's the I'm original. Talking about on, the original
1: one on 27th, on
0: 27th and the Sound Factory Bar was the next incarnation that moved to Midtown, right. wasn't it?
1: Right. It was uh 21st Street. Yeah. Sound um, Factory then moved up where Pasha was, and then Sound yeah. Factory on Twenty Seven became Twilo.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So there were actually three Sound Factories then, huh?
1: Well, Sound Factory and Sound Factory, then Sound Factory Bar, and Sound Factory Bar originally was um, Private Eyes, and then became Sound Factory Bar.
0: That was a fun. Private Eyes was a fun club. Again, First
1: video, creative, <laughs> and brand new in its idea. I remember Mm -hmm. once going to the limelight and these young kids going, oh my God, I can't believe there's a club in a church. I said, well, you obviously never heard of the sanctuary. So, (laughs) you know, there'll never be another saint. There'll never be another garage. Sanctuary was first. My point was back then we were part of everything first. So everything now, there were no clubs with the creativity of uniqueness. It's all been done and it was done perfectly the first time. So now it's always a duplication, which, like, like I said, to new people going for the first time, it's wonderful. Not for yes, me. and, and, I, and, and I, do anything in two hours. Do these DJs get two hour sets?
0: Well, that also is a whole other different component terrible. part where we used to go on a musical journey, and when exactly. you listen to to you know you can't you can't have a six hour musical journey with three different DJs, each playing two hours, absolutely spot on. And yes, that is a lot of what's going on today. So I wonder as ultimately I like to explore this question with younger members of our dance culture who are involved in current cultural events and finding out what it is. That's the heartbeat of today's kids, kids who are in their twenties and thirties now and how that compares (laughs) To the heartbeats that we knew when we were in our 20s and 30s. They may
1: get bored with one DJ playing 12, 14 hours.
0: I don't know. The ones I see all have their phone up and they're either taking video or texting. So I'm not really sure what the deal is. You know, the parties I choose to go to, I dance at.
1: (laughs) You know, the DJs of today have become the act. Like you went to a concert to see back in the day Elvis Presley or Grace Jones or... You know, now the DJ is the performer. You know, well, even yes, you playing because you're not dancing, you're filming him, and that's well, why I'm tired and stop Yes, playing.
0: exact, exactly, David. And and as we discuss these different aspects of what makes a heartbeat, what makes it successful? Is it successful? You know, is the lack of a heartbeat a reason for the failure of a particular venue? or event or whatever um and i and i dare say that our culture of today our automated and digital internet wired up culture of today is so vastly different in so many ways that when we're interacting with people in their 20s it's uh you know they have a whole different perspective than ours that that You know, yeah, oftentimes I feel like my parents, (laughs) my mother had like a favorite Beatles song, but she was not a fan of all the music that I played in the 60s and 70s.
1: You know, the internet is wonderful and not so wonderful at the same time.
0: Yes, as as is life, this is true. But we're not here to expound the philosophy of the internet or life. What I am here to expound upon is the philosophy of our dance music culture, your background, what you've done, a few of the different places that you've experienced. I know you also have a rich history of working with Richard Long, of working internationally at other various venues. For those of you that don't know, Richard Long was also probably one of the most influential sound designers and sound system builders uh, in New York City and the world. You want to Give us a little insight into that, David, before, uh, before we
1: move on to uh, the where are you now and what are you doing now? Richard Long was a great sound man. Um, he built sound systems and uh, the garage was his first real big sound system. And what I found interesting about Richard was he listened to Larry. Larry was very technical very technical. He was a genius. I remember once his mother said when she came home from work when Larry was a little boy, around eight, nine years old, and he took the TV set apart. She walked in and the TV set was in a million little pieces and and he put it all together again. She said right then she knew she had a problem. (laughs) she had a little mad scientist on her hands. Larry was very technical and when he would have discussions with Richard like, I want the sound system to do this. And I want the sound system to be able to do that. And Richard would listen. And Richard would, I don't know if he, who he went home and confide with uh, on these things, but he would come back with little ways to achieve what Larry wanted. The bass speakers at the garage were called Levan horns because Larry had an idea of an extension on them that would change the sound of a bass speaker. And they were named after Larry because it was his idea. My point yes. was... They had a relationship. It wasn't just the sound man came in and put his sound and didn't pay attention. The room was acoustically treated. Back then, you didn't find rooms that were acoustically treated because club owners wanted their rooms to be pretty. Well, and
0: not for for nothing, the garage was also unique because, as we said before, it was Larry's home. It It was was a club where he was the resident DJ. It was only open two nights a week, and he was at the helm. Now, Richard Long also... Put the sound system in studio 54 he put the sound system in the palladium he put the sound system in a myriad of other clubs that i could go on and on that said as he worked with the management the construction crews and the designers of the clubs he did not have that one-on-one relationship with someone who was hands-on in the sound system in the room every night like he did with larry and that is why the sound system at the paradise garage was probably one of, you know, still is referred to as one of the best sound, design sound systems, period. And it was constantly being tweaked, as you said. Constantly. And it was because Larry was hands-on.
1: So many nights, Richard Long would show up at the garage with people. And those people are people from around the world that were building clubs, and garage was his showcase. Yeah, yeah. Come in and hear that sound system, and of course, Larry would show it off. And And I remember remember some nights when they'd come in with a piece of
0: equipment and Larry would say, hey, wait a minute. And he'd be put on a long record and wiggle jiggle and plug it in and check something out. I mean, Larry would jump off the cliff, literally, with things in the middle of the night with what? A
1: thousand people on the dance floor? Eight hundred people on a dance floor? Two thousand. Everyone went with the flow. There was one night Richard showed up with this piece of equipment and... It was called The Quintessence, and it was like a crossover, but it had special effects to it. And Larry right away put it into the into his console and hooked it up. At the same time, Michael Brody was walking in the booth to say hello to Richard and everything and saw that and went, oh, no. If he likes it, how much is that going to cost How much you? is it going to cost me? <laughs> <laughs> and Larry had the toy of the evening and created such magic that night because he was extra interested in the night because he had a new toy. Larry loved the toy. Larry loved the gadget. Larry loved to control it. He did. He did.
0: And he got
1: everything he
0: needed from everyone who was on the dance floor in that room that night because that fed Larry and Larry fed them. And there was this back and forth that created just the most amazing energy that was in that room. And again, that's not to say other places didn't have their own energy, but Larry created a very, very, very special environment and, you know, not off and, and may they both rest in peace. And I am grateful to have been able to call both Mel Sharon and Michael Brody friends, not just, you know, colleagues within the industry, but actually friends. And I, don't know of two people who had greater, bigger, more generous, more kind hearts who were more, you know, giving in nature. And what they created, they created for a community. Yes. Even though they also were sustainable themselves. I mean, that is the ob- obvious choice of being an entrepreneur and creating a business so that you can be self-sustainable. But their mission was to create the community. And that community then sustained them. At least that's the way I like to look at it.
1: You know, a lot of people talk about the garage. A lot of people talk about Larry. And Michael Brody doesn't get enough attention.
0: No, he doesn't. Without
1: him, there would have been no garage. There might not have been a Larry LeVan that we know of today. There would have been a Larry LeVan because his talent was there. But who knows what path he would have taken without the garage.
0: There certainly was this special, special...
1: to get his props thank you michael brody for all you did for me and millions of people because it's gone on like a first domino it's gone on till this day when i do reunion parties and i play around the world the legacy of the garage continues and it starts with the first domino which is michael brody thank you
0: indeed indeed and he uh He was was a really special guy. I mean, (laughs) I went there a lot and I had the pleasure of seeing how he actually interacted from a business perspective because I was on one of the lighting installation crews when they put the rings up. So I saw the way he interacted, not just with those of us that were patrons, members, or participants in the club, but how he interacted with the people who worked for him, who helped him create it. And it was a family.
1: And again, it was truly he also a listened, family. And again, he also listened. He listened to Larry like Richard Long listened to Larry. He put his faith in the person that was throwing the party musically. And yeah. I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Listen to your DJ. You know, not just be the boss that tells your DJ or your employees. Listen to the feedback. If they're running the party, if they're running the kitchen or they're running the bar, listen to them. Learn from them. Don't don't always tell them. And I think I've worked in many, many clubs where the owners just told you what they wanted. They didn't want to hear a word from you. And that's not good.
0: So I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And you know, I think in any business in any interaction doesn't even have to be business interaction in any interaction when you open yourself up to the input of that other person who's on your team or that other person you're working with it builds a greater bond between you and it builds a unified force to go forward in the same goal having the same goal um And it doesn't matter what your job is. If your job is sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets when the night is over. Exactly. Or your job is putting out the fruit in the fruit bowls and dishing out the refreshments during the night. Or in your case, (laughs) being our VIP door bouncer. No, but it's true. (laughs) Whatever it was, you were participating because it was your space. And, you know, David, I think we both can say that we're very grateful to have been involved on an inside basis in places that offered us that i know that yes. my it, it it really is and and i don't work in clubs anymore i don't know if that exists but i like to think that on some level when you have successful enterprises um whatever those enterprises are that you do have camaraderie you do have the interconnection and and you do have the the availability of learning from all aspects of the team. Uh, I, I think that if we look at corporations, we can look at various business profiles in corporations and see some of them that do a little out of the box better treatment of their employees end up down the road having a greater product line, a greater productivity line, a greater monetary bottom line, etc., etc. if you just give kindness a chance? I remember
1: working for someone, I won't say who, um, at the beginning of the party, I'm, I'm hearing some static sound and I'm saying, I think I need a new needle. So I went up and I told you and I said, I need a needle. Why? I said, I, this needle has had it. You're open five days a week, five different DJs. The needles had it, a $35 needle on a half a million dollar sound system. And I was getting the blues over wanting a needle. And I was saying, I'm the DJ. I'm telling you, it doesn't sound good. And if it doesn't sound good, I'm not going to play good. If I'm not going to play good, the dance floor is not going to have fun. It's going to affect the whole night. And $35 shouldn't destroy a night. But my point is, some bosses don't give you that back and forth. They don't listen to you. They look at the register tape all night long. And if the register tape ain't ringing, the party was a bad party for them. They don't care about the quality of the party. Michael Brody did. That's exactly.
0: Michael- and And that's why the Paradise Garage had a heartbeat and was successful for as long as it was. And your other example is probably a prime example of how a place cannot have a heartbeat. Yep. And if it doesn't have a heartbeat, then it has nothing. has nothing. It's true. It, it's there. It might serve drinks. It might have music.
1: But it yeah. doesn't have a heartbeat. It doesn't have no. a soul. It doesn't have a soul is the word. It doesn't have a pulse. It does. It just... Yes, all of it. It's I guess just, I should have called this show the soul of the dance floor, huh? <laughs> well, copy from the dance floor that runs the soul. I don't know. It's all wonderful. And thank you, much for being... Someone who's preserving the history and culture by documenting it. Thank you.
0: Thank you for saying that, David. I I am actually having a really good time, and it's it's a pleasure because you and and my guests so far, and I'm hoping all of my future guests. We have a common history. We're friends. We've known each other. Gosh, I remember <laughs> seeing you at the garage, seeing you at the record pool of, you know, on and on and on uh, from my days as a record promoter or a record uh, when I worked in record production. So it's wonderful to be able to share this and record it. We've got technology now. Um, Honestly, I don't know if I would have discovered all this technology if it wasn't for being in lockdown and zoom and, and happy hours with my production industry events, but it's been a real pleasure putting these podcasts together and you are, but a small part of the overall story. Um, are you, uh, I, I know you're currently involved in the the annual Larry LeVan Paradise Garage commemorative block party. Are there any other projects or any other things you'd like to um, tell us about that you're doing? Or, you know, <laughs> one of the things we didn't touch on, which was a great story, um, and also a huge part of your career and very current, don't we have a film that recently came out about a lot of the ballroom culture and your uh, work with the House of Extravaganza and um, being in films yourself, going back to Cluth, the movie that Jane Fonda did back in the 60s. I was very surprised to learn that that was uh, one of the scenes used from the Club Sanctuary um, back in the day, and you were an extra in that film.
1: Yes, I was. I was an extra in Clute. I was an extra in Octopussy. I was in India, uh, opened a club that Richard Long built in India, and uh, James Bond was filming, and he did a a film moment in the restaurant there, and I was sitting at one of the tables. I keep searching for myself, but I don't see myself, but I was there. uh, Did you get paid? You were
0: there. Did you get paid? You
1: were there. I- Went all the way to India to, to be in a James Bond film, and, uh, and That's you don't know, yes. Um, Sanctuary was a great club, uh, they were all great clubs, they were all they great. Had clubs. Their own identity. Was it I, wonderful, Marsha?
0: Oh, I, it, it, was, it was a while back. Somebody asked me what my favorite club was, and I, I couldn't for the life of me pin it because back in the 70s and early 80s. We went to different clubs every night because each one was its own unique experience. It was its own unique experience. I mean, some nights I wanted to hear rock and roll. I'd go to Max's Kansas City or CBGB's or down in the East Village. You know, know, there was a myriad of things. Some nights you went to Maria Chris and listen to opera. You
1: could bounce around. Yeah. People used to go to Better Days, then come to the garage, then end up at the loft you could bounce around from club to club if you wanted to now yeah. it's uh ivey
0: david thank you very much for joining us today on heartbeat of the dance floor it really was a delight and your your words are so very kind it's a pleasure to try to remember this past and try to archive and recollect all of these stories um, because we're not going to be around forever, and this is a history that definitely should be passed down. Certainly become my passion project of late, hasn't it? Yes, I'm it going has. To invite I'm going to invite all of our listeners to please visit us at the our website heartbeatofthedancelord.com. We are going to have all of our uh, uh, all of our podcasts accessible with players. We're also going to throw up a few musical treats periodically. So keep checking. And for those that want to follow David, Uh, here's his Facebook links that we're running across the bottom. Um, he can be easily found on Facebook and, and David, we just are delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your stories, your insight, and all of the wonderful contributions you gave us through the years. Certainly we would not have the dance culture we have today if it wasn't for people like you giving us what you gave us back then. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Marsha. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you again. And we'll say now, goodbye to our audience till the next time. Bye.
1: Bye.